eating sausage right now and it kind of tastes like Sprite. That's extremely weird. Yeah, that's not a good thing. Yeah, it's really, no, it's really weird. (laughs) High fructose corn syrup sausage. (laughs) Mm, I don't think so. Actually, I went to an Italian deli called Mario's in Glendale the other day, like really classic spot. Been there forever. It's like very, very Italian. And I got this like fig so, uh, not sausage what are they? salami like a roll wrapped in parchment paper fig salami and I was like oh this is some like fancy fancy meat with figs inside and they opened it and cut it and it was just figs nice that's my kind of salami and it tasted exactly <laughs> like Sprite like exactly <laughs> like Sprite it was so gross bro you might have COVID everything tastes like Sprite you might have brain worms <laughs> I'm Ben. I'm alone in my house. What are you? What are you guys? Who are you? I'm Andrew Bailey, and I am, I think, home alone, but I'm in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Colin Caulfield. I'm in my room in Glendale, California. Basically LA, but I I find a, a little bit of pride uh, living in Glendale, living in the suburb. There you go. Uh, yeah, and uh, I guess I'll I'll go now. Um, I'm Cole, and I'm also home. My wife is working from Zoom in the other room, and I'm working from Zoom in this room right here. Nice, working away. Um, did any of you guys ever go to CBGB's? I saw it before they, before they like tore it down or whatever. I, I stood outside and said, oh, there's CBGB's. But it was before I had really an, any understanding what it was other than a famous club. I walked into the, um, John Varvato store and, and looked at the, uh, oh, yeah. graffiti on the wall and the $3,000 leather rock and roll jackets that they were selling. I, Ironic. I knew about CBGB's mainly from the shirts that everyone wears. And then also just from knowing about talking heads and lesser knowing about television when I was younger. I actually didn't know that they were so integral in the venue's history until like, I guess until I read like Please Kill Me or something like recently. Mm-hmm. So CBGB's closed or it's not even CBGB's, right? It's CBGB, singular. Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch that show, Vinyl? The HBO show that didn't last yeah. very long? Beach Fossils. Just, uh, Beach Fossils. Oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. that one episode. Yeah, and there's like a scene where, like one of the worst things about this show was like the Forrest Gump type shit where they would just like put the main character at the center of all these historical events. And one of them was he was just chilling at the bar when the guy was coming up for the design for the CBGB's logo. And he's like, that's a <laughs> stupid name or some shit. What a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Country, country, bluegrass and blues and other music for undernourished gormandizers. <laughs> What's a gormandizer? <laughs> like an eater. Really? Right? 
gor- a gourmand is like someone who appreciates gourmandizer. I mean, that's not a real word, is it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I associate it more with the Ramones than than even television. Although after reading a little bit, it does seem like television were the kind of CBGB OGs. Should we just say what CBGBs is? <laughs> we haven't actually said what it is. Well, it was just like a shitty bar that I guess, you know, country bands or whatever would play at. Wasn't it like 250 cap or something like that? Yeah, it's pretty small. But then from like the mid-70s up until they closed in 2006, although I think the programming was probably pretty bad in the 2000s, but in the 70s and 80s, it was like the punk mecca. Yeah, it's like where the Ramones and Blondie and Talking Heads all got their start. There was this kind of like scene there, but it was it was like it was this interesting kind of thing where like the bands in the scene weren't united by like any real thing besides just the fact that they played there. Like they all had these like very like distinct individual ideas, you know, like like talking heads over here and Blondie and, and television. They're like very different bands and it seems like all they, they all hated each other, <laughs> you know, but um, it was just like, you know, back then there, there weren't like a million places for bands to play. Yeah. It, it, it blew my mind when I, the, I didn't realize how eclectic it was until I read uh, David Byrne's book, um, how music works. I, I think that's the second time I've plugged this book on this podcast. So mm-hmm. Dave, Dave can send me a check if he wants, but it's a really good book. I highly recommend it, but he's talking about the talking heads, you know, like how he was writing music for the talking heads with CBGBs in mind. Like, all right, I'm writing music for this room and like, this is what's already happening in the room. This is what works. I'm going to do this to picture them and the Ramones and, you know, Blondie and Patti Smith, just all sharing the same like micro universe, like this little bubble in the lower East side, just it blew my mind to think that they were contemporaries like that. I feel like with television, Patty Smith and Talking Heads makes so much sense to me. That doesn't television and Talking Heads does. Yeah, and Patty Smith. In All my right, opinion. yeah. It it's it comes when I try to picture Patty Smith and Deborah Harry having a conversation. I think they didn't. I think they didn't talk like straight right. up in, in Please Kill Me. She's like, like I never. I never talked to, or Patty Smith didn't talk to me. <laughs> okay, I can see that. I was then. thinking, because, like, wasn't Debbie Harry's whole shtick, like, kind of ironic? Yeah. Yeah. The song Material Girl by Madonna, do you think, is she, like, making fun of materialism, or is she just like, I'm a materialist? Hmm. I always assumed it was pro materialism in, like, a. Sort of self-deprecating way. Really? The Madonna song? Yeah, I always assumed that it was... Uh, Talking ironic shit. But or self-effacing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just in the context of Madonna as I knew her when I grew up as just being this like commercial icon. But I, I bet some people back in the day were wondering the same thing about Debbie Harry. Like, is this serious or are you joking? The Dive Podcast.
I kind of want to talk about the era when CBGB's closed, like 2006 in New York City. Because mm-hmm. a place existing from like 1970 or whatever, it might have been even earlier than that, until 2006. Like, I feel like when it closed, everyone was like, we are mourning the loss of the great CBGB. <laughs> but that's actually a very long time for a mm-hmm. music venue to be open. Totally. And I feel like in 2006, you know, and then I moved to New York in 2008, like during that time, there was a lot of kind of cultural institutions closing, but there was like DIY venues on every corner. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. It was, that was my introduction to Brooklyn was just like DIY heaven. I just thought that that's how it always was. Yeah. Because Cole, you got there before I did. And I, there was like the summer after I graduated college, you came to New York that year and sort of immersed yourself in the scene while I was off in like Austin, Texas and Spain, just like doing whatever. And then you were like, dude, you got to get back to New York. Like there's bands just looking for a guitarist. Just like get your ass over here. And you found me like a really shitty apartment without electricity. And I fucking <laughs> packed my bags and showed up. And yeah, joined bands and just every day it was like, you go to the venue, not even knowing who's playing. It's just, that's where the scene was at. And you trust that even if the music isn't good that night, you'll be surrounded by, you know, the scene itself. Yeah, it felt way different from the kind of like CBGB thing where there were these like bands that existed and then needed like a place to, to play and to like basically rehearse in front of people, which is what CBGB allowed bands to do. Like w- my experience with it was that there was the scene that, um, you know, there was so many venues that like, I feel like even I wanted to start a band because the scene existed and it was like really self-supporting and, and insular and, um, you know, like welcoming. And there was just so many places where um, bands could play that it felt like if you're not having, you know, if you're not playing shows, then you're like missing out on a part of it. And like seeing, you know, people like Sharon Van Etten and Shilpa Ray and um, like insanely great artists playing to like four people was really inspiring in Mm -hmm. one way, but also was like, fuck, I'm not Sharon Van Etten. So like if she's playing in front of two people, then like I'm fucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But it it really was that there was just so many. Like I remember that first summer when Dive started, we were playing so many shows, but it wasn't like we were playing 285 Kent every night. It was like we were basically on a tour of Brooklyn all summer, just like doing circles around all the DIY spots we could find. Yeah, I mean, that's literally what we did. We were basically on tour in Brooklyn and lower Manhattan just playing, you know, every single place that would offer us a show. Mm-hmm. There was also this, like, the kind of, um, uh, the wake of, like, the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Animal Collective being, like, mainstream successful bands that were, like, just a few years prior to that, like, Brooklyn indie Glassbands mm-hmm. <laughs> bands or whatever, you know? And I feel like a lot of people were like, oh, like, let's go get a piece of that. Like, there's there's free money in Brooklyn, you know? Which there really <laughs> wasn't because it was so kind of oversaturated with yeah, bands. Yeah, I don't know too many people that were getting paid. Yeah. Except for Todd P. 
<laughs> but there was this like mythology of, um, you know, like the Strokes got their start at Mercury Lounge or like Vampire Weekend at Cake Shop and like places that you could just go play on any night. And you're like, well, this is, you know, this is where the Strokes started. So it'll happen for us too, which was like kind of ignores the yeah. the actual way that that the strokes got famous and, and they, they kind of followed the same path as television where it was like these kind of like downtown New York mainstays that broke in the UK, in the UK first. Oh, was television popular in the UK? Yeah. That like when Marky Moon came out, it was like number 28 in the UK. Hmm. It was like, it's, it's funny how it's like, it seems to be a common thread in a lot of rock music history. Like so we talked about the same thing with Sonic Youth about how they were doing yeah. well in the UK like well before anyone really cared in New York. Um mm-hmm. at least like critically. Why do you think that is? Like why does that phenomenon exist? I feel like NME is like a big reason or at least was, but I don't I don't know other than that. And also like, you know, Richard Lloyd has that that thing where he talks about like you know, the UK is a country the size of like a US state and you can go over there and like tour the whole country and like drive an hour to each place. And it's like, you know, and we had that experience too, where we did a tour of the UK where we played like 15 shows in the UK only. Right. And the other thing is just that like alternative music is like much more mainstream over there. And there's like a, a, a kind of different sensibility in terms of, um, you know, what, what gets popular and they become like tastemakers for, for most of, most of Europe, most of Western Europe. I think too, there's like in New York, there's at the time and still kind of, but especially at that time there was, that's like where the industry was like Mm -hmm. the music, the musical giants were in New York and like, in that thing that I sent y'all, which is like a inter- long-form interview with Richard Lloyd, he tells that story about like going around to journalists and getting quotes or just people in the music scene and going like to Danny Fields, who was like an agent for The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and Iggy Pop in the studios, I'm pretty sure. And like he he probably looked at them just like, look at these fucking like loser kids, you know? Because there's probably so many of them. And so he, like bands like that are probably a dime a dozen. And then you go, or in theory, a dime a dozen. And then they go to the UK and they like prove themselves. And then New York embraces them. It kind of makes sense to me. Because like all the like, especially reading Please Kill Me, like all these people were fucking like vagabond bumps. Like early punks were just like drunks, you know? And they were just like hanging out at, bars like anyone else would you know so like from a from a critic's perspective or whatever i guess like seeing a band like that it's like okay this band is good but like who knows if they'll turn into anything you know and that is what hendrix did too right didn't he they just shipped him off to england to you know prove himself and by the time he came back he was famous yeah oh yeah what was the monterey pop or whatever was that the first right yeah festival that he played and yeah um, but yeah, I, I was vibing on hearing Richard Lloyd's talking about how he was just like following Hendrix around in New York City. 
like because he just randomly knew somebody who knew him and they didn't believe him. But then the guy called Hendrix at his hotel and like, sure enough, they really did know him. Mm-hmm. And so then they just like followed him around everywhere. And he was a teenager, yeah, did, right? I think so. He was really young. Yeah. Did did anybody like watch or read a bunch of interviews with Richard Lloyd? Because he tells that story like so many times. <laughs> and it just feels like this like prize story where it it does like serve this function of rooting his music in 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 like in blues um and like you know i feel like television has all these other references but he's like no like i learned guitar from a guy who learned guitar from jimmy hendrix yeah, exactly. and i have this connection here's my hendrix story mm-hmm. it reminded me of ben you remember the dude that we worked with the security guard yeah, we were doing some job in Venice Beach, and this security guard was like, "Oh yeah, my friend's friend with Jimi Hendrix." Yeah, no problem. Or it was like his brother or some shit like that, and he like called him on the phone. Yeah, that- the same thing. I was like, w- as soon as Richard Lloyd started telling that story, I was like, "Oh, this is just that guy. It's probably the same exact guy." <laughs> no, I mean, I was gonna say too. It seems like everybody that has a Jimi Hendrix story, that's like their go-to. They're like, "Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I met him once." dive podcast but i i, I do want to keep keep talking about cbgb because i feel like that is such a massive part of of television's mythology um because you know it went on for for years before they actually recorded this record and there's so much to it and i feel like we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about their pre-marquee moon um times where we talk about this record but I think like an interesting anecdote that also comes from these Richard Lloyd interviews is is kind of like talks about which I think we mentioned a little bit but television was like the first like you know rock band to play at CBGB and they like basically conned their way into into um that venue by just like you know looking for a place to play you know, walking down the street and talking to the owner, Hilly Crystal, and saying like, you know, oh yeah, we play like a little bluegrass, a little blues, you know, it, it like, it reminds me of when we used to cross into the States from the Canadian border. Oh uh, yeah. Um, and, and Colby <laughs> would, would have this bit where the, you know, the, the border agent would be like, oh, you're a band? Like, what kind of music do you play? And he'd be like... Oh, rock, you know, Christian rock. Yeah. And be like, all right, well, welcome home, boys. A <laughs> little, little bit of country influence in there. Yeah. It, it, totally, yeah. Country, Christian, country. And like, <laughs> um, you know, that's basically how they opened the door to CBGB for all these bands that would like define it. Hmm. But it just kind of started as like a con. I like that it's, it is partially a con, I agree, but they were also like their early like, doing work, helping uh, Hilly or whatever, like set up the venue and being like, the stage shouldn't be here. It should go in the back. And they were like, they're like lifting the stage and like yeah. had the idea yeah, to he have wanted- like the Ringo drum riser and everything. So it's cool. Yeah, I actually- Hilly like wanted the stage to be like facing the street so that people could like hear it from the street. And they're like, okay, first of all, 
The door person's not going to be able to hear anybody. Second of all, nobody's going to pay for a show they can stand on the street <laughs> and watch for free. And third, yeah. like, you're going to get shut down in one second. <laughs> and the idea that, like, it's bad for morale because, like, if people don't like a band, like, they're going to have to walk past the band to leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's, uh, I like that, that perspective of being, like, a young band and being like, listen, like, like we know, like, we suck right now. And like people are going to leave our show and we don't want to see it. <laughs> totally. I mean, that was like what made CBGB special was like the band and you can hear it in the early television recordings. Like they sucked, you know, <laughs> like they're, you literally would, would be practicing in front of audience. There's a, there's a quote in the 33 and a third book where somebody's like, the first time I saw television, everything was wrong. The vocals were too raw. The guitar work was relentlessly bad, and the drummer wouldn't leave the cymbals alone. They were lousy, all right. Yeah, they did sound bad. I have another quote. Um, Richard Lloyd said that they were both really roughshod musicians on one hand and desperados on the other with the will to become good, which is like exactly how they sound, you know? The will to become good, I feel like, is a huge, is like, the the centerpiece of that of that little mm-hmm. soundbite yeah totally well that is like the story of the band in my eyes is like you know they they were this like really rough kind of like confusing um like just like kind of ramshackle band and i feel like they're they are like defined by these two eras the like richard hell era and then like post Richard Hell where they made these like specific decisions to get better um as a band and then like put in the work but you know when they were first starting the band um you know Richard Hell and um Tom Verlaine and and the drummer Billy Fickett had this band called the Neon Boys and they put an ad out in Cream magazine which was like the cool like you know rock music magazine at the time yeah. And it was like, like searching for rhythm guitarist, no talent necessary or something like that. <laughs> but then in like, in, Pl- in Please Kill Me, they're talking about auditioning Didi Ramon. And he was just like, you know, they're like, a C- play a C chord. And he would like be sliding his finger up and down the thing. And they'd be like, right there. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, all right. This he's guy's like, like, Yeah, he's like, this, this guy is, is just like too untalented. That's right. I heard a story of um, Richard Lloyd when he first saw Tom Verlaine and they were like, oh yeah, you should check this guy out. He plays guitar by himself just like you. And then he said he watched him play Venus de Milo and was like, oh, okay, instead of forming a band around me, let's form a band around me and that guy. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. then, and that's how that started. I like that idea. Because that was Terry, Terry Ork. Mm-hmm. Wanted, had, like a, had an idea to like be like an Andy Warhol and sponsor a band. And he, Terry Ork was an Andy Warhol, um, assistant. So like, you know, he, he did kind of represent the like Andy Warhol to Velvet Underground dynamic, you know, like, uh, you know, getting, um, like kind of immersing them in this kind of like CD, like Max's Kansas city backroom scene. Um, you know, like the fucking drugs everywhere shit, which like didn't vibe with, Tom Verlaine and then um you know like taking over some of their like artistic decisions like the the album cover for Marky Moon which we could talk about later 
was this kind of like Andy Warhol approach where they just like had Robert Maplethorpe take a photo and then Xerox it a bunch of times. I feel like he, he was this kind of, um, I don't know. Yeah. Like the, the like velvet underground Warhol thing, kind of like Warhol introducing, um, Nico and, uh, Lou Reed where he like set up this meeting for Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine, you know, and was like, was like, you guys got to do something. I did want to talk about Velvet Underground and Max's Kansas City for a sec because I didn't read that many articles, but I feel like every single article that I read was like punk Godfather's television. And it's like <laughs> the only reason you're saying punk is because of CBGB. Like musically, they have zero of the punk trademarks. And, you know, even kind of their ethic besides like, them being described as like dirty kids with like dirty clothes. Um, <clears throat> you know, when they recorded Marky Moon, they got a decidedly unpunk, you know, producer who mm-hmm. was like the Zeppelin guy. I just, to me, they're just Andy Jones. almost, almost the opposite of punk. Yeah. But I think, I think this is a case of like, like how, when we talked about shoegaze and then, I can't remember what other... Like grunge, probably. Grunge, yeah, about how, like, it's hard to pin down, like, one band that sums it up. And then the more you dive into the bands that are, like, uh, known as being, like, you know, icons of a genre or whatever, really quickly, like, the genre gets, like, watered down musically. And I think, actually, like, I kind of disagree... Well, I hear what you're saying about how them going to Andy John's is like not punk, but the way they used him is still kind of punk where they did only first take shit. And they like, were like pissed when he like came with a John Bonham sound and they were like, no, don't fucking do that. And they were like, you know, recording takes while he was like passed out from being drunk and shit. And like, you know, they were like, I still think that they were from the same scene and they had that kind of ethos. And you can even hear it in like the early versions of, um, their music, like the Eno demos, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But even before that and like live, they sound much more like a punk band when Richard Hell was in the band, um, or at least like early punk and like post Velvet Underground. And then like after a while, the music just like turned into this like majestic, like not rock opera, but like, I don't know, kind of like transcendent guitar rock or whatever. Like Prague. But I, yeah, Prague almost. But I still think at the core of the band, um, is some like punk leanings, but I'm I'm open to. I definitely know a lot of punks that listen to it. You know, like punks who listen to punk and not much else will put on television, at, you know, as part of their their thing. You know, well, I think a huge part of like what punk emerged from was this kind of like rebellion against like the excesses of like of like post hippie movement, like you know the like the like Pink Floyds of the world. You know, and for them to really like embrace that kind of um, excess, you know, having like 10 minute songs and these like perfect solos and stuff is is really interesting. And I feel like the the punk side of the band story really just comes straight from from Richard Hell, who mm-hmm. like, you know, he was like the prototype for like everything that we know today is punk. Like his whole entire look was the basis 
for, you know, it was basically stolen by Malcolm McLaren, brought to the brought to the UK and like applied to the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. Like the the book Please Kill Me, like basically the book on punk is named after a a shirt that that Richard Hell made and um that Richard Lloyd wore at at a Max's Kansas City show. Like I think, you know, and like the the kind of like polar opposite figures of of Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine. Tom Verlaine being this kind of like uptight, like kind of nerdy guy. And then Richard Hell, who like I think in the Nick Kent book, he he describes him as having both feet in the sludge. You know, he really was this kind of like the like prototypical punk icon. So I think that that is like the roots of, and their connection with what CBGBs became Mm -hmm. really like is what roots them as being a punk band rather than like the music itself, which I do think has elements of um, punk music at the time too. But like you never hear, no one ever calls Talking Heads a punk band and they were like the same place at the same time Mm -hmm. and a similar kind of style. I think that's part partially just because uh, Talking Heads legacy and their discography went on for much longer. And like television that's has true. one album that they're known for. And they yeah. have two other studio albums, but like, you know, people just think of Marky Moon. So that I feel like they're yeah. they're more like uh they're just more associated with like a specific time. Whereas Talking Heads just did so much over the years, you know? And something we talked about on the Sonic Youth episode when we were talking about that Lydia Lunch, um, you know, talk at, at the uh, that art space in in Detroit, where there we like we talked about the like the glorification of poverty. You know, this like the like roots and this like authentic um, past. You know, I feel like that like downtown New York like bohemian legacy is like so at the core of this band. And that was like the, the like jumping off point for like all the, the like downtown New York punk stuff that, that people have been influenced by, you know, since, since it was like, you know, they were, they were living in like CBGB was like the kind of like, like the, the, um, the like vanguard of the downtown New York gentrification you know, that, that has been happening since. Um, cause both Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine were like private school, like prep, prep boys from fucking Delaware or something, mm-hmm. you know, and they like flocked to the city and Richard Lloyd is like a little bit different where he was like kind of raised in the city and he represented like the, like the, like New York, like authenticity, but like they were just like art, you know, like rich art kids that moved to the, to a poor neighborhood. And then like they're, you know, they like put themselves in, in that like authentic world. And that I think is like the basis for what we call punk. I think, I think too, punk from that time is very complicated. I feel like one, I haven't read the book in a while, but one of like the overarching themes of the book is that like, as soon as like punk was coined and as soon as punk broke initially, not, not talking about the Sonic Youth reference or whatever, but as soon as punk broke, like it no longer was. Um, it like came and went so fast, and so I think like the idea of 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 punk at the time for for people that were there during those years, I feel like they would have a very different um, 
definition of it, you know? And it would be more generous in terms of what's lumped into that world. Yeah, I feel like people have been saying since the 70s, both punk is dead and punk's not dead, like, at the same time. Right, yeah. (laughs) Totally. There had been this, like, kind of, like, new appraisal of, like, what punk music was. And I think a big part of it was Lenny Kay, um, who played in Patti Smith's band, putting together the Nuggets compilation, which I feel like really defined like this, like the kind of like punk sound. Cause there's all these like proto punk bands from the sixties and television used to cover psychotic reaction, the count five song that was popularized by that compilation. So I feel like there was like, while it was happening, there's this like updated vision of, of like the punk sound and its roots. Yeah. I, I feel like most people probably know, but like the nuggets compilation is like a several volume set of like all of these kind of one hit wonder like 60s garage bands um that are just like absolute go-tos for any kind of like uh I don't know I guess there's a specific type of band that would be drawn towards nuggets but for that type of band um you know it's like the the bible basically mhm um, should we listen to something and then we can like drill down into specifically Marquee Moon? Yeah. Sounds good. Should what? we listen to like one of the the kind of like earlier, either the um rehearsal tapes from seventy four, I think, or the Eno demos from seventy five? Because I feel like that gives us a little bit of um, context for like their evolution and the the way that this record was. Yeah, totally. I liked the, like the you know recordings. Yeah, I want to talk about the demos for sure. Um, well, the old songs that that exist off of Marquee Moon are Prove It. Let's do um, Prove It because I think Prove It. There's a lot of like uh, you hear a lot of like musical evolution when you compare the two but also like vocal delivery and like timing and all this stuff i think that one's pretty good
prove it. Just the facts. The confidential. It's not like they they stayed unchanged, and it's not like they are completely different songs either. But it was what three years between the Eno demos and when they actually did the record, or something like yeah. two years, yeah. And they were like playing live that whole time and stuff, and just like really chiseled these these songs into perfect masterpieces, and it made me feel good to realized that uh, they didn't just like roll out of bed and like make this record. Like <laughs> they fucking worked it extremely hard for yeah, a long time. Yeah, the craziest time. change that I heard was just that classic guitar line. Yeah. Yeah, they put it in a different place. Yeah, it was. It used to just be a little and bit shorter. Yeah, and then just that little change that w- would almost sound like a fuck up if you were playing, if you were trying to play it the right way, and then did what they ended up using, it would sound like a fuck up. But that's what makes that riff. They didn't extend it, right? It just happens on a. Di- it starts on a different beat. I don't know. I just know that when I was singing along to it, the guitar line would end, and I would still be singing along to it. <laughs> yeah, they started a little sooner or something like that. Yeah. Um, I feel like we should just talk about some of the like big stylistic differences from this demo that we just listened to and the demos in general. 
You know, I think that the two that jump out the most, you know, some things were like fully formed, you know, I feel like, like Tom Verlaine's vocal delivery was pretty fully formed and the drums seemed pretty fully formed. And it almost reminds me of the, like that YouTube video of like drummer at the wrong gig <laughs> kind of thing, you know, cause yeah. like Billy Ficka had been a rock drummer in Boston, I think for a while, but then had like gone into this kind of like jazz world and Tom Verlaine didn't know that. And so was just like, or, you know, who Richard Hell or whoever brought him to the band didn't know that. And so he just was like, they were like, Oh fuck, this is wrong. And in these old demos, it does sound wrong, you know, cause the band, the rest of the band hadn't evolved to that point. Um, but so that's Richard Hell playing bass on these Brian Eno demos and like the bass, it makes you realize how important the bass lines are in the final record because the, the bass parts are just like completely unformed. They're like kind of like root note things. There's, they're not very melodic. And then the, the like really obvious one is the guitar solos just are like blues kind of like wanky, you know, they're not the like kind of like modal, um, like clean, guitar parts that um television is like really known yeah it was for. like before they discovered you know, just, yeah and like you know didn't have that like clean fender tone mm-hmm. that like that this like pristine tone that like defines one thing i thought was today. cool about the drummer was that richard lloyd said that he had to like really protest just to keep him in the band that for and hell wanted him out and richard lloyd was like yo look at every great guitarist their drummers are fucking crazy they're all over the place so you can't kick this guy out for being like a jazz drummer doing like fancy shit because like that's what all the best guitarists are doing and it really just shows that lloyd totally. wanted to be Jimi hendrix yeah, that's Mitch Mitchell, yeah, that, Jimi Hendrix, that Hendrix yeah, thing is Keith Moon. Yeah. Also, the in the demos, a cool thing that I feel like just comes from, like, them being demos and not being like official studio recordings is the vocals are way more subdued and just like chilled. Hmm. Which I feel like it's like, oh well, this isn't a real recording, so I don't have to like go ham on the fucking mic. I get the sense too from the Eno demos that like from what I've read about them, like Verlaine was just like, This is not gonna be what we use. Yeah, <laughs> so apparently <laughs> Eno was like, you know, telling them to like suspend their amps from the ceiling and shit like that. I know, I read like, that. What, no. Why why would you do that? I can't think of a reason like why that would even be practical or you know? Like just because it Probably was cool. it was no, it was just Eno doing Eno. He was like constantly searching for like weird shit. Yeah, just shake okay. up totally. The there's so many. There's so many examples of Brian Eno coming in to work with the band, and like that just doesn't jive because he has so. You know, we like we talked about. I think on the um, slow dive episode, you know, he has these kind of like oblique strategies, these like kind of esoteric ideas, and that's his thing. But I think he had kind of written the band off a little bit, you know, it was just like, Oh, they're just like this, like downtown New York shit. Yeah. Like, you know, I can, I can do that. And some of them do sound like, um, you know, like, like Brian, Eno songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They sound like here come the warm jets, like in totally. terms of like the texture of the recording or whatever, especially Marky moon, the song it's it's yeah. It sounds like here come the warm jets. Cause they took a lot of, 
like we were saying, the the kind of weird modal guitar stuff, and it's more of just like a dun 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 dun, like just uh, almost like Chuck Berry or some shit, kind of just like rock and roll feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened during those three years? Like, why did they evolve? It's not just that they got better. They must have like acquired new influences or was somebody else doing this type of thing? Like, why did they do that? No, I think, I think a lot of it was, they did get better. They, they were rehearsing constantly. I think that it seems like Verlaine and Lloyd had like a constant dialogue about guitar, probably on a really like technical and abstract level where they were talking about influences and everything and how things should sound. I don't know. Also, I think part of it was Verlaine had a really specific idea for how he wanted the record to sound and they couldn't find a label to let him produce it. And so for like a few years, they were looking around doing these different renditions of the songs and not really being like facilitated adequately to like make it how they wanted it to sound. Yeah, I read a story in one of the, um, I think in the 33 and a third book where they were talking about like their their label hunt and it was just like a toss up depending on what night you saw television. It could either be like, you know, a, a really good band that you'd want to sign or just like absolute garbage. And, um, you know, I think basically what they spent the whole year of 1975 rehearsing the songs with no vocals because it forced them to take all the, um, you know, like guitar parts and like make them into these like concrete things. And there is like improvisation in there, but like you can really hear it when you listen um, through to like the history of a song through the demos, you can tell where, which parts are written, you know, and like, a, the, I think the best way to hear it is, um, they recorded two takes of Marquee Moon, um, the song, when they made the record. And you can hear like some parts are the same between both versions and some parts are completely different. And it was like they just rehearsed instrumental and like and like tried to nail down every single thing they did as like a part. And I think it really um you know, it really served the, the band and the songs. Yeah, that was my first impression of them. When uh, when I was first exposed to television, it was just music that was constantly on when I was working in a kitchen in like a vegan diner in Brooklyn. I'd never heard of it before. And I was just like, damn, these guys spent a lot of time making sure every single note lines mm-hmm. up perfectly. And, it, you know, this is like five years into me being into dive. And I was like, oh, man. So Cole wasn't the first person to think of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, we ripped off so much shit from, from this band. I think, too, like, Bailey, a, a thing that probably not them acquiring new influences, but one thing that explains how it changed over those three years is lineup changes like we've talked about already like Richard Hell stopping or getting kicked out and then Fred Smith playing bass and then I think just them like embracing their strengths as musicians like initially Verlaine was like like Ben or someone said Bailey you were talking about it like frustrated with um Billy Ficka because he sounded like a jazz drummer mm-hmm. And initially on those early recordings, you can hear them like trying to be like a rock band, you know, in a more like in a more like a Velvet Underground tradition, like simple, like Richard Hell just like pedaling the bass and everything. 
And like what you get with Marky Moon in the end is just like them really just like turning up their tendencies to like 10 or whatever. And like the band just like really, I don't know. I love that part of the reason I love this album so much is because it's like a weird example of like an album or a band like working so unbelievably hard and not killing Mm -hmm. what they made, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So oftentimes like people like overwork songs and ends up like they lose some of the essence, but with this album, for whatever reason, it's like they found like the real essence of the songs in the very end after working on it for so long. It's interesting. You say that they all like dialed up there, especially up to 10 or 11 or forget what you said, but um, dialing up, everything that they're good at because the my actual introduction to television was my first band leader Ray, saying hey you play like tom verlaine and i was like i don't know who that is and when i listened to it i was like oh okay she's totally right because what he's doing is just perfect minimalist sparsity just like this is what the song needs me to do right now and nothing more you know just like hit a chord mm. and then nothing for a measure and then a couple of notes you know and it that was something that I learned studying jazz guitar in college was just like rather than playing a seventh chord on all the strings, just pick two of them. That's all it needs, you know, and like the rest of the chord is implied or just like never getting in the way, just strumming something once. And like, so he did dial that up, but the result is less playing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's so important too when you have a band where every member is an absolute shredder. Like if everyone's just going in the whole time, it's going to be shitty and chaotic and yeah. Money. And that's what most like of my friends in college, you know, like we all had little jazz bands, and that's all it was. It was just people shredding over each other, and yeah. like mm-hmm. the best guitarists were the ones that knew when not to play. Totally, um, Bailey. Something that you talked about and Ben talked about that I feel like me and Colin should just do a quick thing was. Um, Talking about your introduction to the band because I think yeah. that's something that 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 people I talked to responded to from the from the um, past couple episodes. Um, so, Colin, yeah, how I did have, you discover television? I think like television is maybe one of my like biggest musical moments from when like finding out about them from when I was a kid. I was like, I have a really, really, really specific memory of it. I was, like, working at this, like, tennis and swimming club. It's, like, a little neighborhood place. And I was, like, I was, like, kind of working. I was just, like, the kid that was around all the time. And there was this older kid named Ed Gadiant who probably was, at the time, like, I don't know, like, 16 or something. Um, But he had to go to the store, the hardware store or something. And I went with him, and I was, like, talking about how I liked guitar music or something, you know? And I'm sure I was just talking about... Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. He was like, have you listened to television? I was like, no, I don't know what that is. And he played it for me and it really was like shocking. It like totally shocked me, you know? Like the amount of creativity in the music was like overwhelming. Just in like a five minute drive to the hardware store. I'm I'm assuming he played the first, just started the album from the beginning. It was See No Evil or something. But I was just like really like floored and it really, really like changed my life not even like an exaggerate you know i'm not exaggerating it actually changed my life you know um i feel like my story is really really similar to yours which is cool to hear i don't think we'd ever talked about that um but i guess my introduction to television was um 
I was working at uh, like a summer camp mm. at the like YMCA, and I was like a counselor. Um, I think I was 16, and uh, there was an older kid who was 18 who was like the arts and crafts person, you know, and you spent the day like going from uh, like booth to booth and like with the kids and they would do arts and crafts. And I was talking to this kid who I just thought was so insanely cool mm-hmm. um, named Adley, who actually ended up kind of being in the same scene as us, had that project Ultra Nouveau that was oh, like wow. a... Um, Anyway, I was, you know, I think I was like into Sonic Youth or something and and I was, you know, this kid was in college. He was like a freshman in college and I just thought that like all that all the stuff that he talked about was really really cool and mind-blowing to me and I was like, you know, trying to be cool too and talking about like bands I liked and he was like, "Oh yeah, like you have to you have to listen to Marquee Moon by Television." So I went to the store like that day. I think he said it would change my life. <laughs> like a fucking almost famous like moment, you mm-hmm. know, um, with the sister, Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. And so anyway, I went to, I went to the, the store and I bought the CD and like it straight up changed my life. And I listened to it endlessly, like so much that I felt even embarrassed to ever talk to him about the band again. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, I got it. It's cool. <laughs> but I think I was like embarrassed by like, I think part of it was just how cool this kid seemed to me at the time that I was like, oh man, I want to be like that. You know, I think he was a musician and like played shows and recorded music and stuff. And I thought it was just anyway. Um, but it was like, I listened to it nonstop for like five years from mm-hmm. when I was like 16 until I was, you know, 21 yeah, or something. Nothing really sounds like Marky Moon. It's such a singular like piece of art. Mm-hmm. Should we try to like figure out why that is? Because I've been tr- thinking about that today, like why it sounds so particular and why still it sounds. I think, you know, a very very large percentage of it is the guitar, and like because even listening to Adventure and then the self titled album, like they're not as good as Marky Moon and I think there's a lot of reasons for that but the those fucking guitar licks are still there and it's just mm-hmm. you you hear it and you're like oh weird this is television like the first time I heard that self-titled album I was like this sounds like television but like something's not right but I could still tell what it was <laughs> you know it sounds like television doing the true detective soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> I think for yeah a big thing that's missing on their later stuff is just like like the ideas of the songs, like the wordplay and like it's like friction, for example, or prove it. Like mm-hmm. the turns of phrase and everything are so immediately memorable and like funny and, and elevation. Clever. Like legitimately clever. Yeah, elevation too. And the later ones they just like when there's like call and response vocals or there's like a punchline, it just kinda doesn't land in the same way i would love to talk about the lyrics a little bit um because they were like you know in the album version they're like printed in there but they're like very kind of obscure and esoteric lyrics because you know i think like a lot of bands um that that came out of that new york scene they were really influenced by like beat poetry and um 
just like poetry in general. You know, Richard Hell named himself after a Rambeau poem, Seasons in Hell, Tom Verlaine. Um, as well, like there, there's this like really kind of, um, there is a lot of like wordplay and like, like you talked, you talked about elevation, the, like how it sounds like he's saying television Mm -hmm. don't go to my head, especially hearing Richard Lloyd, like going off about like his fucking ego about, uh, Tom Verlaine's egoism and shit during, during that time. Um, and the, yeah, like these kind of little asides and punchlines like the like it gets so funny part in prove it or the like get it at the end of see no evil yeah mm-hmm. um but a a really one thing that really stuck out to me from the lyrics i think relates to the um idea that we talked about in the first sonic youth episode about the like psychic twin mm. connection um because i that that Richard Lloyd interview that Colin texted us earlier, Richard Lloyd mentions in it that Tom Verlaine was an identical twin whose twin passed away when he was an adult. Um, and there is this like theme in the record of these like kind of like split personalities or like duality. Um, like there's like a lot of songs will shift kind of like back and forth between like I and then like you Mm. pronouns, like Mm. first and second person. And there always seems like there is this like kind of duo of, of people that are like at the core of the song. And then it's powerful when it switches to, to I, you know, and there's like these little nods to it. Like, um, the, like, I remember when the darkness doubled Mm -hmm. line or the like, um, lightning struck listening, listening, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's my favorite like, line. The listening, listening to the rain. I was hearing, hearing mm. something else. Um, there's like always this kind of like doubling of the narrator. Um, and I, to me, I think when I was younger, I thought of it as being like, you know, Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell, who like left school together and they kind of did this whole like thing together. And there's like, you know, there's that that line where he's talking about where he's like speaking directly to Richard Hell. He's like, um, oh yeah, uh, like name drops his name in it. The like let's drop let's dress up like cops line. Um, so I I heard it that way of like oh it's these two people. But then when I read the the twin thing in the Richard Lloyd thing, it kind of like kind of shook me a little bit. Mm. Yeah, that that stuck out to me too because that's something I try to do with Nixon Cato a lot. Is the because it is like both the first and third person, or the, or the first and second person are the same. You know, they both occupy my mm-hmm. mind, and that vagueness playing back and forth is like it's really easy to write lyrics that way. Um, and I I kind of use it as a crutch, but I think he does it. You know significantly better because I didn't even really pick up on it until I learned about the brother too. I guess I also assumed it was just Richie. Yeah. I guess his brother's name was, was John, John Miller. And like, I I don't know, I don't know when he passed away, but, um, it, I feel like it, you know, the, 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 like the psychic twin, the like Elvis's twin that died in the womb, there is like this built in kind of like sibling, rivalry that like gets externalized and internalized in these different ways so like 
and not to mention the like kind of classic like like sibling rivalry dynamic between Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell that that like went throughout the early part of their career but um I just like it's to me it jumps out so much in the lyrics just like the um just it'll switch you know Marquee Moon's in first person and then right after it Elevation goes back to second person um and it feels like you know that's like the root of it yeah the whole thing is fascinating like when you think about how like twins can sense each other's pain or like any emotions and science can't really explain it yet i've heard that uh, some people try to explain it with quantum entanglement but it it's a phenomenon that exists that we can't fully explain yet um but it's proven and i remember when i was in high school a good friend of mine his twin brother died and he said that afterwards he would still like get those feelings like you know, like phantom twin emotion feelings. And he would still hear his brother's voice in his head and all this stuff for like years afterwards. And like, there's no way that that wouldn't fuck your head or like, you know, influence you in some way Mm -hmm. or another. Well, I think, I think one of the two songs to me that would be cool to talk about because they both exist as demos and, um, uh, are um venus which is an early song that i think there's like really um does a lot to some of the band or elevation yeah which we were just talking about which i think really like highlights the difference to me between like the early version of the band and the and the like later version of the band there's i have one tiny specific take on elevation it's probably my favorite song on the record
my tiny little thing on elevation is the um so you know how they do the don't go to my head and they do it on the offbeat yeah that part really kind of annoys me but really, I, it's also like my favorite song on the record probably so it doesn't annoy me that much how do you guys feel about that part so what would you want don't go to my head uh, yeah i love that part don't go to my head yeah i think they probably had it like that for a long time just like normal like the like the marquee moon guitar part that bailey was talking about um mm-hmm. And then they and then they were like, "Well, we, this needs to be weirder." I can kind of understand how it like it happening every time could be annoying, but I, I definitely when I was younger and I heard that, I was like, "Holy shit, this is so cool!" <laughs> it is cool, totally. Yeah, it's kind of like how you know how like when you when you watch live uh, versions mm-hmm. of your favorite band songs, and like throughout the years, mm-hmm. you can see where like a guitarist got bored of one of the parts and improved it a little bit, and then for the rest of the career, he just plays it like that. <laughs> totally. And you hear it, and you're like, ah, oh, but I was exp- I, I paid to hear the part, not like your new improved part. But because they took three years from the times they wrote the songs, you know, and they were just playing them the whole time, that that was happening all along the way. So by the time they actually recorded it, they had those parts like cemented in already. I think another really cool thing about Elevation, um, you know, on on the song Marquee Moon, we get to hear solos from both Richard Lloyd and Tom Verlaine, and you can like really tell who's who. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think an easy, for me, an easy way to like tell which guitarist is playing is if the guitar line is doubled, um, which I guess ties into the the doubling thing. But if it's if it's doubled which they did a lot, that's that's Richard Lloyd. He would, like, play the solo twice and, like, you know, um, like, play it exactly the same both times. And and Elevation is, I think, Richard Lloyd's best solo on the record. Um, and there's, there's not a Tom Verlaine solo on that song. It's just Richard Lloyd. And it's just such, like, you know, for... I mean, it's like a Pink Floyd style, like perfect i think even i think even richard lloyd says that it was like a perfect solo like note for note um and it's just like i think one of the best moments of the entire album is richard lloyd's solo in that song so wait, he recorded all of his things twice mm-hmm. my note about elevation uh, it's kind of a response to what you talked about earlier, Ben, uh, about this being like a feel-good record mm-hmm. or like a good times rock and roll, which I think of it that way too. But then like the verse from Elevation and like Torn Curtain and like kind of Guiding Light, even though Guiding Light is less melancholy, but all three of those songs have these like really like moody, like cinematic, sad quality to them. Yeah, kind of like ominous. It's actually funny how, like, "Prove It" is a song about with a lot of like detective imagery or whatever. It's so weird. It's really weird, but I th- I think that there is like a little bit of like noir in their music. Yeah, like downtown crime vibe or For something, sure. which I hear in like the verse of Elevation, which is kind of like haunting sounding. Um, and I also love this this song really. Um, I love the huge contrast between the verse and the chorus, um, which I think they do really well where their songs are these like mini suites 
where there's like so much musical um, information and ideas and they really like pack so much in. And this song is like really fascinating to me for a ton of reasons, but that, that being one of them. Um, one thing that we didn't talk too much about that I wanted to ask you about Colin is so before these rehearsals for um, Marky Moon, the, the band parted ways with Richard Hell. There's yeah. like, there was like tension in the band where, you know, Richard Hell was writing songs, including Blank Generation, which became like a, an anthem of of um, that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, he had written all these songs for television and they were getting like slowly phased out. And yeah. there was like this like kind of rivalry. Um, and so they parted ways with, with Richard Hell um, also due to like all the, um, you know, his drug use, which Tom Verlaine was not down with. Um, but they got, um, a bass player called, um, Fred Smith, not Fred Sonic Smith, but a different Fred Smith who had been playing <laughs> the bass in Blondie. Um, and I feel like Elevation really shows off what Fred Smith brought to the band that Richard Hell didn't. The bass The bass lines are just... On the whole album They're are, so melodic. They're insane. They're all over yeah, the place. they're truly, yeah. truly insane. I think, like... It's funny how, like, a lot of times bassists, you're supposed to, like, like a good bassist uses, like, has a very, very strong um, and specific awareness about, like, riffs and what, like, a riff signifies or, like, reminds a listener of. And I think Richard Hell was, like, extremely one note. Like, he, Mm -hmm. he does, like... I think actually Fred Smith uses a lot of similar like turnarounds or like little like walking riffs, but Richard Hell only did like one vibe. It was just like chugging, like simple rock bass playing. And I think Fred Smith's like really huge talent on this album in particular is his ability to do that, but then also inject the song with like a ton of musical references. Like Cole, you were saying that it like the the bass line on Guiding Light. Light, I think, sounds like a Stevie Wonder, like, bass track or something. And it really is, like, there's a lot of, like, funk riffing and, like, really, like, complicated stuff. But he's so good at, like, like pulling that magic trick that the best bassists are capable of where, like, the bass just sits in the song and it doesn't pull your ear but it's somehow like extremely complicated. Mm-hmm. And it's like a really, it's a crazy magic trick that like the only like the best spaces are able to do. And I think a lot of it is just being extremely tasteful in the type of riffs that you're putting into the song. Because all these like, all these like riffs and these like references that he's like injecting to like rock and roll and blues and, and funk and like, and probably like disco and a bunch of different shit. Like, He's doing it at the exact right moment so that it just fits in the song, you know? It's totally. A, yeah, I could talk about I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> but I think that that the idea of that magic trick um from a bassist perspective, being able to like play without overplaying um and being able to know when to not just hit the root notes is like really tough and he does it so well. Cause I well, you've been learning the bass lines. Yeah, right. I learned a bunch of them, and they're fun to learn, and they're really, they're like, they're complicated, but they also follow a lot of forms, like a lot of 
a lot of the bass lines that I've learned so far, like I hear it and I'm like, okay, I know, I know what he's doing. And then I just have to take a second because they're so referential of other uh, bass styles or whatever. But um, they follow the guitar sometimes too, which is a cool little yeah. trick. Yeah, they follow like the it, guitar a lot. It feels like they're improvising together, but then they both play the exact same line at the same time. And it's like, oh, they planned that. And the drums too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like, there are these kind of little, there's like almost like punchline little moments in the drums. You know, there's like a little literal rim shot in the thing. In, in, in like the, there's like, there's something really physical about the, about the drums. Um, and, seeing the the bass and the drums and the guitar play together like that so well is um it's really cool and yeah it shows that like everything was was planned out and written and like i think too like they're all extremely good at that thing i was describing with the fred smith being able to like reference something with a riff they're all really 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 good at that mm-hmm. and like i think that's part of the reason that the album still sounds so unique is that they're pulling from like really diverse references like one example that's like very um obvious or whatever is it maybe this is what you're talking about but the like snare roll improve it like that's what i'm talking about yeah yeah it's like it's i was laughing because like apparently tom verlaine was uh, bummed on Richard Hell and Blank Generation because, or Richard Hell was like, he played it like it was a novelty song. Mm-hmm. And like, it yeah. kind of does sound like a novelty song. But then like, Prove It also has like these, you know, and the rest of the album has these moments that are kind of like novelty or like so tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like you could, you could almost hear like a penny whistle just being like, whoop, or some, you, you know. know. It's, <laughs> yeah. The Dive Podcast. There was one more element of the band that I wanted to talk about that, you know, might not be important, but it was just something I was thinking about. It's like their use of like negative space and syncopation. Like every single song has like these pauses, you know, Mm -hmm. which I feel like is such a cool trick that you would think would be overusing it if you put it in every song, but it just, it's just like part of their sound. Yeah, and it, and that's I think what makes their hooks so catchy is the negative space, like letting them shine. You know, because when when I was listening to this record, the first like hundred times I listened to it, I didn't even know it was television. It was just on repeat when I was working as a cook, and you know, I would go home at the end of my shift and have all of these little licks stuck in my head for like years. They still get stuck in my head. I've never sat down and listened to this record until we did this podcast. So like, you know, and there's like, like, especially even the, the simple ones, like the building, like da, 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 part that should get stuck in my head constantly. Or, um, even some of the, like the vocal stuff, like, um, like in Sino Evil, do you guys ever get this where you get your brain like combines two songs in your memory? And so you start singing one of them, but then like the line. And so for me, it's Sino Evil and Leaving Las Vegas. Where, no, 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 not leaving Las Vegas. Uh, it's Cino, Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, Cena Evo Las Vegas. Oh, nice. <laughs> and that shit gets stuck in my head at least 20 times a day. 
Um, just <laughs> that must be frustrating. From, yeah, you live in a fucking hell. <laughs> That's not the worst one I've got. I've got some bad ones just stuck in there. But but it's all from, you know, what, seven years ago when I was working in this diner and we were just listening to it. And all, all my memories of this record are like, you know, like people hitting out the syncopated drum parts with their chef's knives on the cutting board and shit like yeah. that. And it's just so perfect for that. I, I I do like, like, there's almost, there is like almost this kind of like, ironic or like sense of humor vibe to the to the way the songs are structured you know there's this lester bangs quote where he talks about like grateful dead type bands and he says uh the endless lab- laborious climbing up in the scales get to the top there'd be a moment of silence and everybody in the crowd would go berserk applauding <laughs> <laughs> and like they they like they like subvert that like throughout the whole course of marquee moon where they're like they'll build it up and then like take it, take it away and then like build it up and then take it away. And there's like, it feels almost, um, I don't know, like Like ironic or, or, yeah, kind of. (laughs) It reminds me of, like EDM dudes when they like do the like build up like yeah. and then everybody knows the drop is coming and then they just don't give it to them in the whole <laughs> or they just like, keep the explode. building going until the snare is just like a, a hum. <laughs> I do think this like this idea of negative space though and like restraint um, is very much in keeping with like the way they wanted it to sound and like we haven't talked about this yet but like they j- it was just guitar and amps there's no pedals. At all, yeah. or yeah. didn't mm-hmm. even um, was it Richard Lloyd who plugged straight into the board? Like he he wasn't even amped on a lot of the recordings. Mm, I don't know. I th- I'm not I'd, sure. Maybe he did the oh, maybe he did the overdub or the doubling straight into the board or something. But I'm pretty sure that they record out of amps. But I mean, yeah, and like we didn't even get to really talk about Andy Johns that much. We did, um, but the engineer who like worked on a bunch of like Rolling Stones and Zeppelin and stuff. And they convince him to just like leave everything like uncompressed. And it's like the guitars are hard panned, the drums and the bass are up the middle or whatever. And that it's just the band. You're just listening to the band, mm-hmm. you know? It's like this idea of um like what what we've talked about on on the pod before about Steve Albini wanting to just be like uh someone who captures the band rather than produces them. This album just sounds like that to me. It you know? does, but then there's this like cognitive dissonance when like, you know, in the See No Evil solo or like a couple solos, there's like clearly three guitars, Yeah, you yeah. know, but like in your mind's eye, you're just like so completely picturing these these two, two guitarists like side by side or whatever. And then there's like the solo will be up the middle and you're like, mm-hmm. wait, what the fuck? But I feel like that was something I missed for so long. And the like overdubs where you can hear like some of the bends are different and it's clearly this like studio record. Cause I thought of it so much um, throughout my life as just being like, you know, the band walked in a room and recorded it. The, the yeah. use of piano and the piano too, I think is like, you know, the piano part on like, there was piano on like the early demo of Marquee Moon, mm-hmm. but um, it was gone by the end. No, it's then, in like, it's in the final one too. It's just one note that matches with the hits of like, it's just ding. Ding. It's like super oh, hard right. to notice. But Guiding Light has piano all over it. Um, and, you know, and it was played by Tom Verlaine. And so, like, it it does, like, mess with the image of um, 
it just being like four people in a room because it's, you know, little studio magic there. Yeah. But it's still like the, I think you get both. Uh, I th- or I think part of the reason why maybe you hadn't thought about it until recently is that like they still, it was like the majority of the album is like one take, you know? Mm-hmm. So you still, the shell of the, the right. recording is still just like abandoned in a room and there's a couple, f- there's flourishes here and there. It's funny how uh, the p- the piano conversation is funny because at the end, I don't know if it's the very end of Marky Moon or it's before the last time they go through it or whatever, but that part where like after the building thing, the like clouds part, and it's like the twinkling guitars. Yeah, love that. I remember that being like, piano or there being piano in there but it's actually just guitars i wonder if they had piano at a certain point doing something like that and they were like no it should just it's be in the guitars. demos because it really it really yeah but in the demo it, it that section feels a bit different it, it's like missing one of the chord changes or something no, like that. No, but the very, like, very end with the twinkling stuff there's like synth and and piano i think or oh maybe yeah, yeah there is there it's, is synth. it's very you yeah, know that that's is very very you know yeah very like taking Tiger Mountain by strategy or whatever. So I checked. He he plugged into the board for their first commercial release. The oh, Little Johnny Jewel. Yeah, yeah. What is that? I I. It was their first single that was a. It's like a seven minute long single that's on both. The the song is on the A side and the B side. So you have to like halfway through the song flip the vinyl. I think it's so. Damn! Why wasn't cool. it a hit? <laughs> Um, but I'm also reading that he used like heavy gauge picks with a thin or heavy gauge strings with a thin pick, like mm-hmm. so heavy that the G string was wound. Richard Lloyd. Uh, oh, no, no, no. Verlaine. Sorry. This is Verlaine uh, who is going straight into the board. And also that he would use the middle pickup, which I just always feel like is the worst one. But he would use the middle pickup and then pick over the bridge pickup. That's totally that Fender sound, though. That's like the most Fender sounding. Yeah, exactly. Pickup. If I had, if somebody was like, "Hey, what's a band that sounds like a Fender Strat?" I would just play them this record. Well, <laughs> well Lloyd used a Strat, and Tom Verlaine used a Jazzmaster. Yeah, he was like the one that that brought back the Jazzmaster. Oh, right, because he was using that um, the floating bridge tram arm all over the place. It's funny that when they were talking about like what they didn't like about the Eno demos, is they were like, "Oh, it sounds like the Ventures." But to me, the Ventures are like a a commercial for Fender, basically. Totally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that quote. Um, I think Lloyd talks about it in that interview where he's talking about Tom Verlaine just like turning to Brian Eno and, and being like, why does it sound so bad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like over and over. And Brian Eno being like, what do you mean? I think it sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I th- I hear, like I totally hear it though. There's like, you can hear this on other stuff that Andy Johns worked on where it's just like the, the, like everything has its own space in the recording. It's so easy to listen to, you know, like, and, and the guitars sound like so beautiful on Marquee Moon and so resonant and like, and not loud, but just like clear and articulate. And on the Brian Eno demos, like they just sound kind of like plinky in comparison, they don't sound full bodied. It's just kind of like, it's like a thicker, more like rock sound. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little dirtier. 
Yeah, or just like mellow or like thicker, I felt like. You know, it yeah, was yeah. Like, it was like after they were like, hmm, this is good, but let's just put a high pass filter on everything and that'll be our sound. Yeah. Well, we could talk about just like the end of the band. You know, like they made this record, um, played three shows at CBGB's and then never played there again. Actually, yeah, that's something I don't know anything about. They broke up during the like, promotional cycle for this album well no because adventure came out the next year right okay so the yeah i think they might have broken up like late 1978 or something and then they got back together in the 90s but and again in the 2010s yeah that was a desert days thing wasn't it desert days and i remember they did something at rough trade oh yeah i saw them at rough trade that year oh you went which was i went um and it was like, you know, it was amazing to see these songs that I had listened to so many times in my life. But um, it was at the very beginning of this new venue in New York that was in the back of the New York location of the Rough Trade record store. And like when they first, first started, they had really hardcore noise restrictions. Like the show couldn't get above like you know, 80 decibels or something. And so the show was like wildly quiet, which in a way works with television, but it was also just like kind of awkward. You know, you could just speak to the person next to you at like talking volume. They, that <laughs> was it, also like before Rough Trade like renovated the venue. I think when they first opened, mm-hmm. it was like poorly designed. Um, and it just, I, I heard that it like not just television, but like a lot of bands just didn't sound very good there. True. Which sucks. Now, it doesn't matter because live music doesn't exist anymore. So we're all it's studio right, yeah. musicians now. Wow. <laughs> the Dive Podcast. Air conditioning always reminded me of television. I felt like that was the most. That was like a straight up rip. That was always interesting. From that was like one of the things that hooked me about Dive initially was that guitar playing in that song. totally that's like a lot of old heads i mean like not like older fans of ours but i mean like actually older human beings who listen to us that's their favorite you know yeah specifically talking about my father (laughs) and arno yeah and that song was like i i I remember like when the 
Pitchfork review of the first record came out, they're like, this album's cool, except for that song, Air Conditioning. What? And I always really liked that song, um, but it was just like a straight up television rip. Like, I think the the bass line came from just like a little short snippet of a television bass line somewhere. I heard it last night when I listened again. It's like, that's it. <laughs> but then the like Mixolydian scale, which is basically just a major scale with a flat seventh yeah. scale degree, um, is like, you know, I always called it the television scale. Mm-hmm. And just like, you know, I, I, I learned Marky Moon. I figured out what scale it was and just like, played a thing in that and we did the same thing live where we when we played air conditioning where the solo was written yep. you know so it was the same every time with just a few little spots where you could mess around but like the ascending um part from marquee moon there's even like straight up riffs um they're like um you're not gonna be able to tell what that is but anyway <laughs> i straight up stole a a like a riff from it. It was like really just like trying to incorporate um, the like influence of television into something. Cause what I found from trying to write a jam for this band, it's extremely hard to like try to write a television song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because there's so much, there's so many like filters it has to go through before it becomes an actual television song. You know, it starts as just kind of a simple chord progression, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then like you flesh it out so many times that you can't just write write one from the start. Yeah, and just like trying to write a television song alone as like one person is like really difficult because it's like four personalities talking at all times. You know, the approximation. Totally. Um, one thing I did want to say was like, you know, just kind of reiterating, like, the the idea behind this podcast was, like, <clears throat> we basically, I feel like with all of the podcasts we've done so far, which is The Cure, Noi, Slow Dive, Sonic Youth, and Television, and Nirvana, that really is the core of influences for the band Dive. And that was, like, mm-hmm. why we kind of like started with those albums and we might maybe think of a couple more, but I feel like from this point forward, it's possible that the podcast, cause it, cause it, if you were just listening, you might be like, Oh, why would you, why would you talk about Marquee moon? Like there's already like books written about it or whatever, but there's like a, we kind of chose specific um, bands and albums that were like direct influences on this band and maybe in the future, because we are going to try to have some uh, other people besides the four of us on the podcast and maybe uh, slight changes to format and stuff like that. So I feel like this is kind of like the the end of like the core of influences for Dive, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a great idea. Like in the first, if the the ch- the book of the dive podcast, this concludes the first chapter. Mm-hmm. That's a long ass <laughs> chapter. Vo- volume one, maybe. It's gonna be a long ass <laughs> book. Yeah, season bro. season one, season one. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So uh, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh,